Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, do you suffer from climate anxiety or know people that do? We'll be trying to navigate our way through it. And Dr. Tara Shine will talk about her experiences in international climate negotiations, as well as her book, How to Save Your Planet One Object at a Time, for this week's My Green Life interview. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. And now it's time to head down to Earth, beginning with our weekly Planet News Roundup. Yes, it's our regular feature, the Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig helps me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Craig, the first story this week I think we have to talk about is the weather, because both the UK and Ireland have been battered by storms Dudley, Eunice, Franklin, and I think Gladys now, all one after the other. And coincidentally, the good folks here at Icarus Climate Research Center here in Maynooth University just published a study in the journal Climate Dynamics looking at the changes in the jet stream, so that narrow band of air about 10 kilometers high flowing from west to east around the world, and it obviously really drives our climate in this part of the world. So when they looked at that jet stream over a 140-year period, they found that it's actually moving northwards, closer to the UK and Ireland, and it's increased in speed by about 8%, which is making our storms more powerful. Are you actually surprised by any of this, Craig? No, I'm not really, Cara. I mean, actually, 20, 30 years ago, we were hearing about how this was one of the likely impacts of climate change and that, you know, sadly for us, in the UK and Ireland, climate change was most likely to mean uh, wetter and windier future rather than necessarily that kind of the idea of sitting there drinking gin under the palm trees. Uh, and so this really just kind of confirms that. And, um, you know, of course, the fact that this research came out in the same week that we've had this kind of conveyor belt of storms coming in from the Atlantic, battering both the UK and Ireland, I, I think it just sort of really resonated for people. And it really raises questions, I think, as to how well adapted our economies are to the climate change yet to come. I mean, it's it's one thing that uh, the change we've already experienced and these more extreme storms, uh, but actually it's nothing compared to what perhaps is just 10, 15, 20 years away. And I don't know about you, Carl, I find every time there's an extreme storm like this, you know, the trains stop uh, because the overhead power lines clash into each other. Um, it, it really sort of causes quite a lot of disruption. Uh, so I don't think our economies are anywhere near as resilient as they need to be for the more extreme weather coming. Yeah, you're right about the timing, because I notice as someone who's involved in this whole space of climate change, every time there's an extreme storm or big weather, the media is really quick to call people like me, maybe people like you and say, what Mm. does this have to do with climate change? And that's usually really hard because it takes a bit of time to run the numbers and be able to attribute specific storms to climate change, whereas this study just happened to come out. I mean, it's actually been something they've been working on for years, but it happened to come out at the same time that all these storms are happening and, and kind of adds evidence to that. But you talked about the the economic implications, and I, and I was surprised, you know, there was no mention of the impact on air travel. It's obviously going to really change uh, travel around the globe because of the changes in the jet stream. But also, too, it showed that the North Atlantic is really unique. A lot of these problems with the jet stream 
moving and speeding up are happening specifically in the North Atlantic area. And we're not prepared. We're not able to adapt to these kind of changes. And and we're not even really able to predict what the implications will be of these changes in the jet stream. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and you're I completely agree, Carl. I mean, we get people like you and I get called all the time when you when you get sort of stormy weather. But actually, whether one individual storm uh, can be attributed to climate change or not is is kind of irrelevant if actually scientists are really, really clear uh, that this is the kind of uh, weather we're going to get much more frequently uh, in the future as a result of climate change. You know, it, you can't necessarily you don't have to pin one particular storm on climate change to to just be reminded that this is the kind of future we're going to see more of. And so I think that point about getting our economies ready, uh, learning to to adapt to the climate change we, we've already got locked in and that we can't avoid now, whatever happens now, I think is a really important point to think about. And, you know, you look at roofs flying off houses, you look at uh, all that disruption to our uh, transport infrastructure, you know, the fact is we're not ready. Uh, Western society is not ready for the coming storms, unfortunately. And and I think we've got to treat adaptation much more seriously. Yeah, possibly a piece of good news that you've brought me this week. The next breaking story comes from Australia. And we're used to hearing about all these plans for climate action actually being delayed. But this is a situation where, in fact, Australia's largest coal-fired power station has announced that they're going to close seven years early, actually in 2025. So is this something we should be celebrating? Yes, I think it definitely is, Cara. I mean, you know, I <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's. I f- obviously feel for the workers involved here, and I think uh, the the uh, story behind this is that because, sadly, the Australian government, certainly under Scott Morrison, has sort of been in denial almost about climate change or need to act on it at least, then actually they haven't put the mechanisms in place to to kind of um, make sure that there's a fair transition for workers. Uh, so I think there is that to talk about. But overall, uh, coal-fired power stations uh, closing. If you're concerned about climate change, that's a good thing. So you're right, Australia hasn't been known for being progressive when it comes to climate action. Let's have a listen to Scott Morrison five years ago, just before he became prime minister, as he brought a lump of coal into the parliament. Mr Speaker. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. The treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. It's coal. It was dug up by men and women who work and live in the electorates of those who sit opposite. From the Hunter Valley, as the member for Hunter would know. It's coal that has ensured for over a hundred years the Deputy that Australia Prime Minister. has enjoyed an energy competitive advantage that has delivered prosperity to Australian businesses and has ensured that Australian industry has been able to remain competitive on a global market. Ancient sunlight, I think they call that, Craig. (laughs) Uh, Australia was absolutely slated at the United Nations COP26 last year for failing to meet the climate challenge. I think you were there. You were probably watching all of this. Have they suddenly seen the light? Well, no, what's happened very simply is it's the economics has changed. I mean, origin energy uh, has what they've done is that the owner of the power station has given notice to the Australian energy market operator uh, that it will be shutting this uh, coal-fired power station from August 25. And the reason they give is the rapidly changing conditions of their national electricity market, which are increasingly, they say, not well suited to traditional baseload power stations. Now, I think there is a point here 
Cara, also about the rapid rise of cheaper renewable energy. And in Australia in particular, the huge fast rise of solar power, which is really kind of making a difference to the dynamics in Australia, which is perhaps less relevant, say, to the UK and Ireland, uh, not least after the previous conversation. Um, but actually, nonetheless, that change to uh, traditional baseload power stations is relevant to countries like the UK and Ireland, because actually what you see uh, as we move to renewables and better energy storage and actually just a more smart energy grid, perhaps, is what you don't need is big power stations on the grid that you can't turn off. What you do need is a much more dynamic and agile grid. And I think it's really interesting that when you see the cost of renewables coming down and actually when, if you get, say, in Australia, a period of a, a lot of sunshine or a period of a lot of wind, actually it squeezes out coal-fired power. And so I think this is really interesting. It's, it might be happening in Australia, if you like, first uh, because of their huge abundance of renewable energy, but I think it will come to other countries as well. I was actually kind of surprised that the new South Wales energy minister responded to this announcement by saying he was disappointed in the company's decision, but he acknowledged that, you know, the closure would cause some problems if if the power plant isn't replaced. And then he promised that the state would build what he described as the biggest battery in the southern hemisphere in response to that. Is is this a, a real concept that's going to happen, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big issue here is not so much renewable uh, technologies in their own right. I think, you know, solar power, wind power and uh, other forms of renewable energy are well proven that the big challenge now is to move fast for economies on uh, energy storage. And of course, we've always had to do that. You know, uh, countries have always had to stockpile coal, has always had to uh, store gas and so on. So there's nothing new about energy storage as such, but it, it needs to be quite different in an age of renewables. And I think uh, you're seeing that quite strongly now in Australia. But I'll tell you what else is interesting in relation to this story in, uh, over the last week, Cara, is that actually now you've got tech billionaires uh, in Australia talking about buying up. Uh, some of these sort of failing coal industries and shutting them down earlier as well. And it's really interesting that this uh, tech billionaire in Australia called Mike Cannon-Brooks is now trying to buy several big coal plants to shut them down in favour of renewables. And you might think, is that just a kind of altruistic thing to do? Well, it could be. You know, a lot of tech billionaires love to talk about how they're saving the planet. But actual fact, you know, uh, building on what I was saying before, really a new 21st century energy system is like to involve a lot of smart tech. It's likely to involve a lot of microchips uh, deciding how to have a much more dynamic response to energy demand. So maybe he might be thinking about the commercial side of this as well. So I think what we're seeing here in this story from Australia this week, when you put those all together, is just kind of the front line, perhaps, of what the new energy world order might look like. And I think with the, obviously, the very disturbing news from uh, uh, Ukraine as well this week about what's happening there, I think surely all of this just points to the, the need for the Western world to get off that fossil fuel hook as fast as possible and actually think, how can we make a 100% renewable economy work as fast as possible. Speaking of getting off fossil fuel, Craig, I think your your final story of the week, we need to throw back to the, the 1997 movie, The Saint, where actress Elizabeth Shue explains the magic of cold fusion. This is the, the apparatus. And very simply, when positively charged deuterons are attracted to the palladium cathode, they cram together, and there are millions and millions of them inside the cathode, getting closer and closer, and then they, they fuse. 
and they create energy in the form of helium. But I read somewhere that the experiment couldn't be replicated. So how do we know it works? Well, we don't. Not yet. There were a lot of movies and articles about this idea of nuclear fusion in the 1990s as this kind of source of unlimited clean energy where we would harvest that, you know, the power of the stars and the sun, Craig. But now it's back in the news. So have we finally cracked what some are calling the biggest scientific and engineering challenge of all time? Well, interesting. I mean, I think it's really important for us to talk about this, Carla, this week, because it, it I think it is fair to say that what happened over the last week was a significant step forward for nuclear fusion at the uh, joint European Taurus uh, experiment in Oxfordshire in the UK. They succeeded in generating 59 megajoules of heat. That's equivalent to around 14 kilograms of TNT during a five second burst of fusion. Uh, and they managed to get the plasma that creates some fusion to, to sort of last for five seconds. Uh, and so there was lots of scientists celebrating this. There's been other significant developments recently around the world on this as well, not least in the in the US on nuclear fusion. Um, and, you know, I think it's very interesting. I mean, you know, traditionally environmentalists have been very opposed to nuclear power. Uh, and I would say personally for good reasons as well. But we know that nuclear fusion is a bit different. Uh, it doesn't cause the same kind of levels of uh, pollution and so on that, uh, and, and all the uh, many of the other concerns associated with nuclear power. However, does this mean that it's around the corner and is it a nice sort of silver bullet to tackling climate change? Um, I, personally, I think not. I think we're still a very long way from... Uh, being able to develop nuclear fusion power stations that can sustain the fusion reaction for long enough to actually generate more uh, energy than has been put in to start the reaction in the first place, let alone kind of containing that reaction in a kind of safe way, uh, let alone being able to scale it up in a sort of industrial uh, scale and, and, and out. And can any of that happen by 2030, by which time we have to have halved global emissions of carbon dioxide by at least 50%? No, I don't think so. So although I think we should sort of essentially cautiously celebrate the success of uh, scientists in doing this, and it is an interesting scientific experiment, um, I would worry about perhaps uh, polit politicians and others being distracted from what we know works uh, and know has to be rolled out at speed and scale by 2030, which of course I would say is renewables and smart technologies uh, and energy efficiency. We know that works um, and we should carry on experimenting and researching nuclear fusion, but let's not rely on it. Yeah, you quoted this 14 kilograms of TNT, which is the 11 megawatts of power that they generated over five seconds. And, and maybe that sounds like a lot for people who don't understand explosives. But to put it in another way, it's enough to boil 60 kettles worth of water. And and this is this is a stat that's double, you know, what they achieved in 1997. So between 1997 and now, you know, we've gone from boiling 30 kettles of water to 60 kettles of water and it's all over the news and everybody's celebrating and I just can't help thinking you know we can power millions of homes with wind and solar and I don't remember any big celebrations about announcements around that so is our excitement kind of misplaced should we not be celebrating the fact that we can capture the power of the wind and the power of the sun already uh, instead of getting so caught up in this big news story around uh, nuclear fusion yeah, I completely agree, Carla. I mean, I think there is a kind of a, a bit of a big tech, uh, let's let's all wear a white lab coat or a high-vis jacket about this, and we get excited about the big kit. And perhaps it's harder sometimes for the media 
or perhaps particularly even male politicians. I think there might be a bit of a gender issue here, if, if dare I say it, Car. I think it is uh, much more exciting for uh, particularly male politicians and engineers to get excited about bits of big kit rather than actually focusing on what works. And we, we know how well renewables work. We know how well energy efficiency in particular, just uh, insulating your loft and things like that. We know how, work, how well that works and how, how well that delivers, but we don't get nearly so excited about it. And as you say, in countries like the UK and Ireland, when you think how much tea we drink, goodness, we need more than just enough to <laughs> boil 60 kettles. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the gender thing because it was in my head that this kind of boys with toys sense of these articles that I was reading. But they're saying I that... I thought I'd say it well before you did, Carla. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I won't be accused of sexism here. But there's a new fusion reactor now being built in the south of France uh, to kind of pilot, continue to pilot this. And ironically, we'll be discussing the other nuclear reaction, nuclear fission and its viability as part of next week's show on Down to Earth. So in the meantime, Craig, thanks for the rundown on the planet's weekly big news. Okay, Carla, speak next week. Great. After the break, our experts discuss the rise in climate anxiety and how to cope.